Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week has such a crazy story that you would think it was completely made up. Imagine for a minute that you're 14 years old and like to sing at home with your sister. The two of you have a group with some friends and see an ad for an audition at your local church. You go to the audition and meet a woman who introduces herself to you as a gypsy fortune teller. She predicts two things for you. One, you're going to have a number one song. And two, she's going to write it with you. And a few years later, both of those things come true. Crazy, right? But that's exactly what happened to this week's guest, Lou Christie. When I see lips to be kissed, I stop. I stop. I stop. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I am very very happy today to be sitting in person next to our neighbor here in New York City. That's right. <laughs> the legendary Lou Christie. Uh, Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's funny because we were just talking about your history in growing up in Pennsylvania outside sure. of Pittsburgh, but for a while now, you're my neighbor right here in New York City. I know. I ended up, I can't get out of this area. <laughs> you know, I've lived all over the world. I lived in London for a few years. Of course, I'm from Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. so I lived in Hollywood for right. a few years. Right. And so I've, I've traveled all over the place. I just keep coming back to New York. Do you love it? You know, I do. I do. But it's going through such changes it now. It really is. I mean, the world is going through changes now. Yeah, but that's, New York, that's New York a City is a much, a much different place post-pandemic than it was pre-pandemic. Totally. You know, you can't walk a block without seeing a for rent sign. But the city always comes back. Yeah. What are you building these higher buildings for at this point? Right. You know, unbelievable. I mean, I, we, we live in the area. This is just, it's a new New York. It's a They're new building York. a new New York. It's a new New York. But in New York, last month, you celebrated your 80th birthday. Oh. Happy birthday. I didn't know I was going to talk about this. <laughs> Yes, but, thank uh, you. But happy belated birthday. Thank you very much. Um, so that's a good place to start because 80 years prior to your birthday, you were born outside in, in a town called Glen Willard, Pennsylvania. Right. But your name was not Lou Christie. We're going to talk about that. Sure. Let me see if I get this right. Your name at birth was Luigi Alfredo Giovanni Sacco. Yes, that's it. And now it's Lou Christie. Well, uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> And in America, it was Louis, you know, a, but in Italian, my father's Italian, so it was Luigi Alfredo Giovanni Sacco. Right. You were, know. You, were your parents first generation? Um, my dad, his father was over. Half the family was born in Italy. Half of his brothers and sisters were born in Pennsylvania. Got it. You know, uh, my mother was Polish. Interesting. And her mother was from Poland. Got you know, it. So. so when you guys were growing up, I read there was a lot of music in the house that your parents harmonized, and you said it was like living with Les Paul and Mary Ford. Absolutely. That was the best part of my life, beside having animals around, because I lived on a farm. Oh, I didn't you know, know my that. dad had a, 
109 acres of crab apple trees and things like that. And we had uh, goats, chickens, pigs, ducks, cats, dogs. And was, it days a commercial? June. was it a commercial farm? No, it was just everything my dad grew, we ate. Or everything he shot in the woods <laughs> with his gun right. uh, uh, that we ate, right. you know, whatever it was. So, so Glenn Willard is around uh, 35 miles away from Pittsburgh, but it's much more rural, right? So yeah. for your dad to go out and shoot for food, no problem. You're not doing that in Pittsburgh, but in Glen no, Willard, no, no. No, oh, no, no, no problem. No, it was out in the country. Right. And of course, as we got a little older, my father then built a cabin up in the Allegheny Mountains. Mm-hmm. And it's we still have it. Wow. It's in the family. Wow. And it's always super improved because my sister's there to take care of it and your sister amy well amy is living in california now but mary marcy and shauna lots of sisters Uh, yeah i have four sisters and uh, a brother wow um i bring up amy because amy famously sang with you if if your dad and and mom were les paul and mary ford maybe you (laughs) and you and amy were the the junior version of that and i love the story that you see an advertisement for a quote-unquote audition when you're around 14 well, you years old. Well, you got it down, yes. And true. Amy is younger than you at the time or no, older? No, Amy was 18 months older than me. She's so Amy's 15, you're 14. Yes. And you go to a church for an audition for your group that you yes. and Amy are singing together. And, yes. And, and tell us what happens. Well, I went, I think, I don't know how we got there. If I, was, I wasn't driving then, so I don't know. Maybe Amy was at that point. Or my dad took us down to the church. It was really uh, the church that we went to, a Catholic church there called St. Catherine's. So it was in the basement, and I read this thing. It said Buzz Recording Company is uh, having auditions for uh, groups. And so I went down, I got Bill and Amy together, and, you know, Judy, another girl. You know, So we had two girls and two boys in the group. And we were called the crewnecks, crewneck sweaters. Of course you were. (laughs) Yeah, because it was that, you remember the teenage, that Frankie Lyman, the teenagers, that T? Well, ours was the C. Nice. (laughs) So just to put it in context, this is around the late 50s, around Mm -hmm. 1957, 58, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. So we've got the rock and roll era has started, but the Beatles have not arrived. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, the year four years maybe right. before they started. Mm-hmm. So and you then go to I the church. Go to church in the basement and we walk in and I, and I said, oh my gosh, this is like so exciting because, you know, I'm born on a farm, you right. know. So I see this woman back there with this red hair and she had like an emerald green dress on and these big loop earrings, you know, with this red hair. She was great looking and I said, oh my God, that must be, she must be from New York <laughs> City. And we had a pizza house in that town, and it was my dad's pizza house, but it was the family's because I was the one who was making all the pizza in the... In the so it was family, you know, family business. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, but my dad also worked in the steel mill. So uh, as after he opened the pizza house, you know, then he got a job at the steel mill again. Of course, my mother was pregnant at that time. So anyhow, uh, making pizza and... One day, and I and I see this. The bus stopped in front of our pizza, and this girl, this woman, got off with the red hair and everything. I said, "Oh my God, that's the woman from New York!" And so I ran out and I said, "Are you from New York?" And she said, "No, I live on, on the hill." You know, and I thought, "What?" And she said, "Yeah." She said, "Oh, you kids were so cute." She said, "You know, well, you know, I loved your, you know, you were so nice, and you, you know, your harmonies were really great." So you didn't and, speak to her that day at the audition. You spoke no, to her after. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't know. And Buzz recording turned out to be nothing. Nothing. It was 
sort of a joke. So this you know. woman that you meet, she's around 20 years older than you are. So you're 14, 15. She's in her mid-30s. Mm-hmm. Her name is Twyla Herbert. And she ends up playing a very important part in your story. Very important. Because... I, you know, as I read, and, and again, you know, what you read and what really happened in real life, you'll, you were there, I wasn't, so you'll tell me, no, that's not exactly what happened. But Twyla has been described as a gypsy, mm-hmm. as a fortune teller, mm-hmm. as a seer, as, Very you know, psychic. somebody who you could almost view up the visual out of a movie, you know, the sorceress, the enchantress, the fortune teller. And she basically, I read, told you that you were going to be successful and that she was going to help you. And both of those things came true. Yes. We got to we got together. She says, why don't you come up and, and you know, she says, I have a group too. <laughs> and she says, I live up on the hill. It was only a you know, up the hill. It was a mile away. So you're a little disillusioned as a teenager because you think she's the woman from the New York record company. Yeah, and said that you kids were really great. And she says, oh, that's not going to happen because of the... Just stupid, you know, why it's not going to happen, you know, because this guy was not really the person that I thought he was. And so anyhow, I went up and I brought my group up and we sang a couple of things and she played because she was a concert pianist. But... She didn't know rock and roll. She would play triplets like, you know, maybe the Chantels mm-hmm. would, and, you know, maybe or something, right. maybe, you know. And she wrote some stuff, and I thought, oh, I just love that they were so, but they were so sophisticated, like things that she was saying was far more than I was. Well, you, you were used to, I was writing as a 14 year old if you were writing at all at that Exactly. Point. I was writing Teardrops on My Pillow right. Tonight. You right. know, it's like, meh. You know, really. And so she had a group called the Classics? Well, we ended up being the Classics uh, because she, uh, her daughter became part of the group. I became part of the group. Kay, who was in Luigi and the Lions, became part of the group. So it was a constant shifting around of family and friends. Uh, it would just happened. And then she and I, I sat down at the piano, and I, I never got up from the damn piano for 50 years. I mean... We just started writing together. The first song we wrote was The Gypsy Cry. We wrote it together. And did you, was that lyric inspired by her as a gypsy? Or? Well, I was just fascinated by them. You know, I was always fascinated by the odd person in the room or something. And, and she was the odd person in the room, and you've said you were the odd person in the room. So you guys connected. Uh, yeah, we that. just, we never fought, we never had a disagreement. We just sat down at that piano, and we, she kept talking, and I thought, she sees the world a totally different way than I'm seeing this world. I thought, I, you know, but she was fascinating because she was flamboyant. She was, I, she was Lucille Ball right. to me, in a, and she was, her awareness was beyond anything that I knew right, at, the, at 14 or The 15. image you conjure up is, you know, from movies and TV, when you think about the gypsy, you know, with the large earrings and the bracelets yes. and, and, you know, maybe a scarf exactly. and, 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 and all those things. And let me tell you about your future, you know? Yeah, but she was divorced from her husband. She had two daughters at that point who were around my age, you know. So anyhow, we, you know, she, but she was funny at everything she talked about. Her awareness was beyond anything that I would even think about at that point, you know. And she worked, and she had a, her mother was there, and her mother was from the South. 
And her name, well, we called her Graham. It was just Graham. And she had this little voice that just said, Twyla, she'd say, Twyla. <laughs> and she was a very major Christian from the Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. And she would emphasize the Church right, of that Christ. That one. Yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, there was always something going on about that. And she would sit in, in the room in, in a rocking chair with the Bible, and she wouldn't let certain people in to see Twyla, you know, that kind of a thing. She would like, and Twyla would smoke cigarettes. She never knew it. Mm-hmm. She smoked, you know, she was just that kind of a, right. a bad girl, sort right. of like, she did her own thing. So very colorful. Very colorful, because her hair was flaming red. Right. And she... Talk about bangles mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. earrings and mm-hmm. that. She was just that. Right, right out she of was central that. casting. Right. <laughs> right out of central So casting. you said that you sat at the piano. Had you taken piano lessons at that point? No, but we always had a piano in our house. Mm-hmm. I plunked around at it and paid, played chords, but I was not a piano player. I didn't read, right. you know, and I've gone through that trying to learn how to. But working with her, I started hearing so many things right. and I couldn't do it on the piano right. so I just I can play every instrument but I but I can't right. you know I hear it all because so would you hear something is, and then she would play it on the piano she wouldn't know what she's playing because she she could memorize like Chopin a right. hundred pages of Chopin automatically sit down and play mm-hmm. it because I, t- I used to test her sometimes right. uh, she would put the music up and she would start playing and then I would turn the page and then I would turn and then I'd stop turning the page and she would just continue right. on she never looked at the page because she remembered she memorized it right. all because she studied classics right so she didn't know rock and roll at well, all with that background it's crazy that the first song that you ever wrote together you know you as a teenager and she as a classical pianist turns out to be a massive national million selling hit called the gypsy cried yes and talk about the local producer slash record label in pittsburgh that decides to release the song well that was i you know one of my influences was i was a record freak of course of 45 you know because LPs weren't that important at that point. But then the, the Skyliners, I heard the Skyliners, and the record called Since I Don't Have You. Classic. And that was Jimmy, Janet, Jackie, Joe, and Wally. I'll never forget them. And you said the Skyliners and they were, were from, from Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Right. And they were, they were produced by a man from Pittsburgh, Lenny Martin. And I thought, if they can do it, I can do it. Right. They're from Pittsburgh. from Pittsburgh. You're from Pittsburgh. Let's go. Right. And so I somehow wiggled my way into Lenny Martin's office in Pittsburgh, took a bus for, I don't know, a quarter to dr- uh, get on the bus and go to P- go to Pittsburgh because I wasn't driving at that point. You know, I was still young. And I made an appointment to see him. And he went in there and he said, do you want to take lessons? And I said, um, sure, you know. I didn't know what I was there for. I wanted to try to get on the label. So he goes in and he starts playing. And he says, can you sing? You know, he said, sing something for me. So I sang Just In Time, you know, a standard, a couple standards he picked. And he said, oh, you, yeah, you, do you sing jazz? I said, I don't even, I didn't even know if it was jazz. But he, the way he played it, mm-hmm. he was, you know, and it was jazz, you know. I said, well, I have a group, you know, and I said, we, you know, I things that I write and he said I said it's a, it's a new 
a new sound. I said, we sound like three mice. I said, it's a different sound, you know. And I said, I, I love the Skyliner stuff. And, I've, and he said, well, I'm cutting a girl. And he said, can you sing some backgrounds in that? Do you want to try, you know? Oh, I said, yeah, you know. So I, ran, I went home with the tape and it had a couple songs on there. And I worked it out with a couple of friends, Kay, who was in Luigi and the Lions and Bill and my sister and everything. So we went back and we, we learned the song. Ronnie came back and we came back. And he just busted out laughing. He said, it's so interesting, because I was singing falsetto. Mm -hmm. I was singing the top part. And, you know, Bill was probably, I think Bill was under me and the girl. So I loved that sound. It was very close and weirdly mm -hmm. harmonizing. Mm -hmm. And so um, we cut a few records with him, and they became hits. Right. And, for uh, other artists. You were singing background, right? Yes, mm -hmm. mostly for Marcy Joe. Got it. That was it. Um, no, you know, there was another guy we did a background record for, but it was always Marcy Joe's record. And then he turned it into, we got to pay these kids. We'd like to cut your your own record. Got it. So that became Luigi and the Lions right. with the jewelry and uh, Little Did I Know. And what label was released? Robbie. Robbie Records. So was Robbie Records Lenny's label? Yes. Robbie's, yeah. So from there, all of a sudden, I was getting a little notoriety in Pittsburgh, and Nick Sensi heard my voice, and he because I used a lot of falsetto in mm -hmm. it, because I was singing lead, mm -hmm. you know, and I never set out to really sing lead you know when we were washing dishes with my sister. She you, would, I would sing lead, she would sing the harmony, but you know, she could harmonize. But I, I just loved the harmony that right, was you happening were part around. Of a group. You, uh, you yes. didn't think of yourself as the leader of the group. No, you were part of a singing group. But I was the only one that stuck it out and kept going and right. kept going and everything. And I, people would drop out of the group right. and I would get another friend and let's go, you mm -hmm. know. And I was forever pulling my sister Amy into the group. And she, and I even got her on stage a couple of times and she said, don't ever do that again <laughs> for, you know. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> So but, Nick, uh, Nick Sensi was a producer in Philadelphia? In Pittsburgh. Uh, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, in Pittsburgh. He, he was, at that point he was working with, he was cutting a few records. None of them were really hits. A kid named uh, Johnny Jack was making a, a few little bubbles in Pittsburgh, you know. So he met me and I said, uh, you know, I told him the same story. We have a group and it's a different sound and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, you know, come on up and let me hear them. So they wanted me to sing like the Fleetwoods. He said, well, cut a record. You know, you have a nice, mellow voice. And I thought, why, why would I want to sing like the Fleetwoods? You there's know, I want to sing like Fleetwoods. myself. Right. They, they, were, they right. have the Fleetwoods, right. you know. So I went back and I said, and I met, and got Twyla again. I said, Twyla, you know, I, I, we have to, you know, do something here. So she said, well, let's write a song together. And that's when you wrote The Gypsy the Cried. The Gypsy Cried. She, and I, I said, and I was going, she was in the kitchen feeding her uh, ex-husband. Um, and she <laughs> said, and so I said, cry. And I said, and I just got it. I just plunked on the piano a little bit, you know, and I, and I had it. And I had it. And I said, come on. She said, all right. I was so we ended up 15 minutes it took us to wow. write it. It was just like that. Gypsy.
Well, you stumbled on something that would become a hallmark where you take one sound and you play off of that sound. So whether it's the gypsy cried or lightning strikes, where you realize that that's something that can hook the listener, right? Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why we did it. Because I thought, I got to do something to catch their attention. You know, and that's when I went, I had some trouble with my baby, you know, with the chord, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was like, is this a guy or is this a girl? I, what's going on here with these? Right. And then, yeah, yeah, all these things in the background. They right. were sassy, barking, and a little craziness. Right. And But it was so original. He said, I don't know what you people are doing, right. but it's, it's really interesting. Where, where do you think the falsetto came from? Because I read that after your voice changed... Your voice got very low, but you yeah. never lost the high never. falsetto. So you were the lowest bass in the choir, but yep. also were able to hit the highest notes in the choir. Absolutely. I could vocalize with, you know, bass, tenors, altos, and sopranos. Right. I could just do it. Uh, and it never left me. And I'm still singing in the same key That's crazy. that I recorded them 60 years ago. I'm still singing the damn song in the same key. Amazing. And so when you brought the Gypsy Cry to Nick, Nick pr ended up producing the record on that, right? Yeah. You roll your eyes. Why? Well, he really wasn't a... Producer. He didn't have... Uh, yeah, he didn't... Yeah, he really wasn't a producer. He, he loved falsetto. He, he loved my voice, the falsetto. And it was it was just different, but... You know, we got through it. I mean, I started, I think, on after that, I had to do it again because it was a million seller. Right. The record came out, and it's, I started doing record hops for all the disc jockeys. Clark Race and all KQV and KDKA, and, and the darn thing started selling, you know, because they were, a, the rid, place where he worked was a one-stop. So they had all the records from... MGM mm -hmm. from Roulette mm -hmm. Records from Capital. He sold them, you know. Uh, that right, was a, a one a one stop. That's not a name that you hear much anymore. No. <laughs> but back then, that's the local distributors of the forty fives that were coming in from sure. all over the country. So if Nick had his own one stop or worked at a one stop, it was easy for him to get his records. Yes, out with all the other records. Exactly, and that's what he did. It was on CNC label. So see. See, right. You know. So his partner was Herb Cohen. Yes. And so Nick and Herb had a label called CNC. And Nick presses up copies of The Gypsy Cried. You think, you know, you, you were told by, I, I assume you were asked by Nick to come up with a name for the new group. And it wasn't a group. It, it, it was that, you. It was just me. Right. I, you know, I got, uh, yeah. So Lou Sacco. But unfortunately, without telling you, he had another idea. I walked in. I said, oh, I have, you know, my names for my, you know, names that I had, ideas. And he said, well, your name's, it's coming out today. Your name's Lou Christie. And I thought, oh. you know, it was far, far from what I wanted to be called. Because I had some, you know, interesting name, a creative name. Right. You know, at least I was, I was Luigi at that point. So it was like, I'd rather have Luigi. Did he tell you why he picked no. the name for you? No. Because it was, well, no, he didn't do that. But my father said, you're going to get lucky with this name because it had Christ's name in it. Wow. That's an Italian for you. There you go. An old Italian. Well, and, I, I wonder if what Twyla's mother would think of that statement. <laughs> you know what? We, we never asked her. 
<laughs> the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ. <laughs> yes. So the record comes out, becomes a smash. Yes. And then you get, or Nick gets a call from New York. Right. Well, Nick was selling roulette records because that was the one stop. Right. So they knew, Herbie Cohen, they all knew Morris, Morris Levy. Levy. So Morris Levy, for those who don't know, was Ooh. a... You know, I would say famous, but probably the more apropos word is infamous, record honcho of roulette records. And our former podcast guest, Tommy James, has a book called Me, the Mob, and the Music about his life with Morris Levy. And, you know, there... It reads like a movie. So Nick and and Herb and C&C Records end up selling the Gypsy Cried to Roulette. Whatever they did, I don't know. I never was told how it happened, why I didn't get paid, like Tommy James, right. like Frankie Lyman, right. Right. like the Chantels, like the Flamingos. So the, re- the record sells a million copies, but you're not getting paid on it. No. And I... I thought I thought that I was, because I had two. Uh, two. It happened again. The next record was another million seller. Two faces have eyes. Right. So I thought, well, we wrote that one. Let's go back. Let's do another one. Let's right. go. You know, come on, because it wasn't even off the charts. And two faces come on, uh, because it took a long time for the Gypsy Cry to catch on. Right. But when it caught on, it was. Do you have any recollections of the roulette staff beyond Morris Levy? Like, who was the promo guy? Red? Um, What was his name? I I forget. um, He took took Tommy's record. Tommy told me that he took his record all over the world. And he loved these guys, even though they stole wine from him. So do you have any recollections of, of Morris that you could share? Well, I met Morris. I thought he had... A lot of charisma. He was a very good-looking dude, very sharp, very, you know, just nice. You know, cosmopolitan. Yeah, he was a, you know, and I think most of the secretaries found him attractive. But you knew he had a reputation before you even walked in the door, you know, and it wasn't a good reputation. You know, I heard about it before when they took the record, you know, because I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes because they all knew each other. Well, it was the Jimmy Rogers story. Right? Yes. Yeah. Where? Yeah, the Jimmy Rogers, and, you know, and that it wasn't a good ending. Right. So tell us, you know, so Morris is charismatic. Any, any interactions you remember? Well, when we had interactions became, well, he was very, you know, standoffish. I mean, proud that he had another hit record. And at the time... Johnny Nash, was that it? I can see clearly now, Johnny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is Johnny still around? Johnny passed away recently. Oh, really? Because he picked us up in a limousine. Johnny did? Or no, No, Morris Morris did. Sent the limousine, a Cadillac limousine. I never rode in a Cadillac limousine together. And took us over to his, I guess it was a club. Morris's club? Yeah. Was it Birdland? No, the other, it was another one. Copa? No, it was the, the, another. The one that somebody wrote a song for him. I thought it was Lullaby of Birdland, but it'll, it'll yeah, come to yeah, us. One of yes. His, yes, I can't remember the name of it, but took us out, and you know, all of a sudden there were these women, hookers and everything around, and Johnny and I, and I was like, yeah, I don't know what the heck was going on, you know. Right. But he was like treating us to this all, everything we wanted, and drinking. I didn't drink, I right. didn't drink anything. Well, just to know. put it in context for the audience, you know, you're not even 20 years old at this no. point. So you're still a kid from rural Pennsylvania, and now, you know, 
you're being picked up in these crazy cars, you know, Cadillac limos by Morris Levy's people. And, you know, Morris Levy's reputation, you know, precedes itself. But meanwhile, your follow-up to The Gypsy Cried is Two Faces Have I, where you again riff on the syllable of the I, and that <laughs> becomes a hook because you're like, look, these DJs have a short attention span. I got to catch them in 10 or 15 seconds, right? Thank you. Two Faces Have I. And that was another one of those things, little hooks. Now it's considered the first reggae record. Wow. Goes boom, 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 boom. Two faces have I. Two faces have I. Right. I've read about it myself, and I never, I didn't even know what reggae was. Right. We did it, and you know, Twyla played piano on it, or she played the organ, I think, and then someone else. So it was boop, 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 boop. You know, and and it was like a new thing. I didn't know, but in many of the record books, people say was the first. Wow. You know. Reggae record. So, so the year's now 1963, and this is your first top 10, Two Faces Have I. You then, you know, when you have a hit record, and again, to put it in context, you know, think about the other artists of the time. We'll talk about Bob Marcucci later. But Bob Marcucci worked with acts like Frankie Avalon and Fabian. Fabian. Those guys weren't songwriters. No. You are having hits with songs that you are writing yourself. And back in 1963, that's very rare. Very. The only one I could think of was uh, two of them, Paul Anka and Neil Sedaka. Right. That was it. And I don't know. I didn't think it was... I never thought that way. I didn't... My mind... I was just happy to. I got a record out, and it's well, those guys. Million, those guys were, you know, quote unquote, professional songwriters. Neil Sedaka yeah. was writing, you know, in the Brill Building world, not only for himself but for everybody else. Right down the street. Right, and we'll talk about Don Kirshner in a minute. <laughs> but you know, you are a kid from rural Pennsylvania who's just writing songs for yourself with yeah. your new friend, twenty years <laughs> older friend Twyla. But what happens when you have hits like this, when you have hits like The Gypsy Cried and you have hits like Two Faces Have I, back then, you didn't go on tour yourself. But people wanted to hear these songs live. So there would be these cavalcade of stars type shows. And you went on something called the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. Many of them. Well, talk about that, because that doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't. But what an experience it was. Uh, That was the first, the biggest thing that I I did a couple really big rock and roll shows when I flew out to California at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And, you know, they gave me 25-piece orchestra, and I thought, I cut the damn record with four people, you know, (laughs) and my my sister singing backgrounds and everything. But those shows were... Starting to happen. I played Murray the K's show here at the, you know, in, mm-hmm. for wins. Uh, but then when Dick, I did American Bandstand in Philadelphia, and uh, the record was taken, just taken off, and I was all of a sudden a teen star, right. you know, a pop person, you know. So I, I, I 
get on the first couple of the tours with that. And there were people like Paul and Paula, Ruby and the Romantics, the Drifters, the Crystals, the Supremes, Brian Hyland, Del Shannon, Gene Pitney. I mean, we all were on one bus together. Wow. One band. And all of us slept on the bus every other night, sitting up in this, you know, didn't have... A, didn't have a bathroom, didn't have bought water bottles. <laughs> Th- those names, you know, for people who may not know names like Gene Pitney or Del Shannon. I mean, this was the soundtrack of that era. This was every hit every coming hit. out of that era. And you talk about the Supremes. That's the first time that you ever met Diana Ross, right? Yes, it was. That wasn't the first time I saw her. I saw her on television and on a teen show. It was the Clark Grace show. It was like the, the bandstand show. And I thought, this girl, she's got she's different looking or something. And I called my sister. I said, Amy. Yeah, I said, this is Amy, my sister. And I said, um, this girl, is she, she, I don't know, she's something unique about her. Well, I ended up getting being on tour with her. And we became close. I'm, and, and when I walked into rehearsal, Mary uh, from the Supreme said, there he is. That's the guy we were watching on television. Oh, you know, fine. he was on bandstand. And right. I said, oh, my God, that's the same thing right. I said about her. Right. So that would be Mary Wilson. From Mary the Wilson Supremes, from yeah. the Supremes. Mm-hmm. And she said, we were talking to, talking about something. Of your, that's so funny because you had been watching them on TV. Yes, the same exact thing. I said, her lips are so different. You know, she said, that's what we were saying about you. I said, oh, I, I was always embarrassed. I never smiled. Right. You know, because I thought, oh. Yeah, I so later, later on in your career, <laughs> you would write a song about Diana Ross. She sold me magic. Cool. She sold me magic that you wrote with Twyla, but we'll come back to that in a second. So this Caravan of Stars tour yeah. is going great, but then you get called up to the Army. You were in the Army Reserves. You get called up and talk about that. Six months, and that was about it. So, Where you know, were you? I had to get up. Uh, Fort Dix, Fort, Fort Knox. <laughs> we don't know. Anyway, Fort, where, uh, I've been to every damn state in the union. Right. Uh, well, you're you're in the Army Reserve for six months, and then where the money is, Fort Knox. Fort Knox. Fort, yeah, is that that's where it is. Yeah. <laughs> so you're there for six months, and you get you know the itch. You're like, why oh. am I here when I've already had these hit records? And you vow to yourself. I'm going to get out of the army, and oh, I'm going to have a number one record, which I haven't had. And the day that you get home, I read you called Twyla. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I I mean, I stayed in. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was we had already established. Right. You know, we I, I've got but to get. But now going. you were on a mission. Oh, mission that definitely. you were going to write a number one song. Yes. And so talk about lightning strikes. <sighs> wow. Well, when I came to New York. I, I, my hair was about that long because that was the guy got out of the army, you know. And I thought I had to get back to New York. So, matter of fact, Joe Rock from the Skyliners, who managed the Skyliners, spoke to Bob Marcucci and said, you've got to see Lou Christie. He had Fabian Frankie Avalon. Mm-hmm. And Rona uh, Barrett, which and I, Rona, I didn't realize. And Rona Barrett, kindness. they were all friends. Right. Yes, they all went. <laughs> and, and Bob and, and Fabian and Bob lived together Fabian, Frankie Avalon, and Bob, in California, in a Frank Lloyd Wright design. And I read that you said, I mean, Twyla could predict the future, but you said to yourself, one day, I'm going to work with Bob Marcucci, and I'm going to live in that house in Sunset Plaza. And I did. And you did. 
and I did. You and, and Twyla should have been playing the lotto. I, well, uh, you know, I have been so lucky in those kind of things. The psychic thing, I find so many th coincidences. It's beyond coincidence. <laughs> this is a coincidence. I don't know if it's a word or not at this point. But, yeah, I mean, I have fallen into that kind of category so much in my life. So you and Twyla write, the first song you write coming out of the Army is Lightning Strikes. But you're no longer with Roulette at this no, point. No, no, I've turned 21, and Pennsylvania was supposed to take care of me and protect, you know, and protect me, you know. No money, no money. So I ended up with two million selling records, an album, and two other top 20 hits. But How no many teardrops, you know. I turned 21 and had to leave because I was not making any mm -hmm. money, and they were then wanting the publishing, installed all the publishing for me. And I, there were no rules. They meaning roulette. Roulette. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Morris Levy and that. So I just So left. on songs like The Gypsy Cried and Two Faces Have I, do you have the publishing back or you don't? After, how many years has it been? After, yeah, 27 years or something like that, I retrieved uh, those back. Uh, but at this point, publishing and that doesn't mean... What it right. what it used to mean, right. you know. They took all the music, they took all the money from the publishing. I got it for the writing, right? Of course, because the Twilight and I wrote. Right. we belonged to BMI, you right. know. But the publisher share went to Roulette. Yeah, you know whether they had the legal rights to it or not, it went to them. And but who was going to tell Morris that he doesn't have the legal <laughs> right to take the publishing? Right. Yeah. So how does Lightning Strike end up on MGM? I meet his business manager Bob Marcucci's because. Joe Rock from the Skyliners mm -hmm. management called Bob and said, meet Lou Christie. So Bob calls me and says, you have to meet my business partner, Mr. Pauly, Stan Pauly. He's in New York. So I met Stanley. He says, what do you want to do, kid? Uh, when they call you kid, you know, you're in, you're, you're in for some really trip. Uh, so I said, I'm, I'm going to cut something new, you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to use Charlie Colello because I knew Charlie. He was very fascinated by some of my records. Well, Charlie Colello, for those who don't know, again, a lot of these names yeah. uh, aren't talked about as much as they should these days, but Charlie Colello is probably one of the most famous arrangers of records from this era of the 60s and the 70s. Probably the most well-known record that Charlie Colello arranged is Sweet Caroline for Neil Diamond. Well, how about the records called Four Seasons? Well, he did all the Four Seasons yeah, stuff. Yeah, the arranging. Yeah. And... I mean, he he produced. Uh, he, I mean, he wrote charts for Barbra Streisand, for Sinatra, mm -hmm. for me, for the Four Seasons. I mean, he just had hit. He should be in the Rock and Roll Hall right, of Fame right. if there is such a thing right. at this point. So uh, you said that Nick on the Gypsy Cried wasn't a producer. Was Charlie a producer? Oh, uh, he knew enough about it that he was he was good enough to know. You know, because he was with all the all Bob Cruz stuff mm -hmm. that he he was the ranger. Right. So he he, he was part of that Four Seasons show. He, thing. It's yeah. what he. He wrote. actually played in the Four Seasons for a while. Didn't oh he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh sure. Played bass yeah. in the Four Seasons. And he was my partner for many years. Right. That that story you know goes on. Right. But when I did Lightning Strikes, do you know it ended up number one on your twenty third birthday? On my birthday, which I wrote and I wrote it and I sang it. When I
But on your 23rd birthday, Lightning Strikes goes number one. Yes. And ironically, I was looking at what else was in the top five that week, and number five, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Who knew? Hello. Right? <laughs> Crazy. And your boots are made Nancy Sinatra. Right. Nancy Sinatra was number two. Stevie Wonder was number three. Wow. Well, you've so, got it down. You know, and, and what's funny is this is the era. The Beatles are now here. And so, you know, there's kind of this push and pull between the serious album formatted artists of the Beatles, but still the teen idols who are having these big one-off hit singles, you know, whether they wrote them or, or not. And so I read in 1966 when you had the number one of Lightning Strikes that there was a photo of you in Variety which was captioned hotcakes because your clothes at a 1966 Cleveland concert were ripped off your body. You had to employ increased numbers of police bodyguards. And, you know, you had broken your nose surfing. Oh, and geez. and the, the teenage <laughs> fans rushed the stage, pulled you down, banged your nose, you rebroke your nose, you know. And then in 1970, I love this, during an appearance on Joey Bishop's television show. Oh, boy. Network censors refused to show the lower half of your body because, according to them, you were, quote, doing an Elvis. <sighs> Well, you had a lot of information there. <laughs> Does that all sound fairly uh, you know, accurate? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was turning into quite an event to go to travel and to you know walk on stage and things were heating up. Were you, were, were you having fun or was it a little crazy? Scary. It, well, it was. It got a little scary sometimes, you know, because you couldn't get out. You'd have to be backstage and. You, you know, and and I have to have like policemen around you, and you know someone watching all the time. And even when I went back to home to Pittsburgh, there were people in the bushes or people right. wanting to come up. And all of a sudden, I was relatives to right. many people and right. friends of many people. You owed a lot of people money, probably <laughs> at that point. Right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Um, so after Lightning Strikes, one thing that I always find really interesting, because at that point you had recorded for Nick and Herb at CNC, you had recorded for Roulette, you were now on MGM. All the labels found songs of yours in their vaults and started releasing yes. old Lou Christie records. Yes. So there were five Lou Christie records charting at the same time. That's right. I was yeah. I had five. Uh, a, I think a couple albums, and I had. Big time, I think, or guitars and bongos, or um, yeah, I had five things on the charts at one time, and the Beatles, I think, were the only other people <laughs> that crazy. did. But they were from all different labels. They would put them out, right. and ah, all of right. a sudden, them back right. on the charts again. The, the other crazy thing about Lightning Strikes is your new label, MGM, should be a great start. Brand new partners. You play it for the head of the label, and he throws it in the garbage. Yeah, he said, oh, piece, piece of crap, you know. But you and Bob say, we don't care what he thinks, we're going to start promoting it anyway, and it becomes a hit, and three months later, there's a picture in Billboard magazine of that gentleman. Giving me a, the a gold record. The president of MGM Records yeah. um, giving you a gold record. Yeah. Great moment, right? <laughs> Very good. Did you whisper in his ear at the photo shoot? Hey, remember me? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to. <laughs> so after Lightning Strikes, you follow it up with Rhapsody in the Rain, which becomes controversial because of some of the lyric content. Yeah. And, you know, that's 55 plus years ago. So if we were to get into what was controversial about it, our listeners would say, 
Really? That's controversial? Yeah. Making love in the rain? That's controversial? Making out in the rain. Making out in the rain. In this car, our love went much too far. Right. That very, very oh, uh -oh. ooh, ooh, yeah, very. He was too orgasmic. Very rated X, yes. <laughs> the windshield wipers seem to say, together, 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 together. And now they are saying, oh, never, never, holy, holy, baby. Rhapsody in the rain, Rhapsody in the rain. And so that becomes a hit despite the controversy, maybe not as big a hit as it would have been if you didn't have to re-record the lyrics and, and stop time. But Time Magazine mentioned that you, in an article, you, Lou Christie, were corrupting America's youth. Yes. How did yes. that feel to be well, that corrupting was... America's youth because of the windshield wipers in the rain? Seem to say, together, <laughs> together. <laughs> I know, amazing, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like a nursery rhyme today. <laughs> so, so Bob Marcucci, who you end up working with, the way that I read it doesn't end up being the best creative partner for you because you were succeeding on your own terms with songs you and Twyla were writing with a very unique sound that had this, you know, a little bit from the Four Seasons, but that, that Lou Christie falsetto was undeniably uniquely you, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. But Bob Marcucci was like, no, no, you have to evolve your sound. You have to go more mature. You have, And your instincts were like, this isn't right. No. Well, when I heard him say, when, <laughs> when I heard him say, why do you sing that way? I thought, this guy doesn't know. He's he's lost in the trap of something. Right. He doesn't, understand, he doesn't understand why this is what's working. What's going on? Right. Why? Why? Because... He had nothing to do with lightning strikes. Right. It was his business partner who was the one who really right. knew Morton Asseter at you know at MGM right. Records and got the record right. on the label and said we'll promote it ourselves, you know, and we did, right. and that became. But he know, didn't really understand he, your music. No, because he was dealing with old Vegas, Las Vegas, before it turned into now what it is, you know. But he was, uh, you know, oh, that sort of like, um, you know, Johnny Mathis, uh, which I, one of my favorite voices of all time. But not exactly the music you It wasn't were pop making. music. Yeah. It wasn't... It, it was wasn't, middle of the road. It was adult Yeah, standards. it was adult contemporary yeah. mm -hmm. music. Right. So you change labels again after MGM. Oh, you go to Buddha, right? Or was Cold Picks before Buddha? Or I think it was. Yes. Right. So Cold Picks what? was Don Kirshner, and that was around '64. And then Buddha was in the late '60s because I'm going to make you mine was '69 on Buddha. Right. And Kirshner was outed the probably a week before I brought the album out. Got it. So Don Kirshner, for those who don't know, was one of the most famous music publishers of all time. Had a company called Alden Music. And that was right in the Brill Building era of the greatest songwriters of all time, whether it was Carole King and Jerry Goffin or Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil or Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich. It was all happening, you know, in that Brill Building era with Don being the epicenter of, of a lot of that. But, you know, your labels, you know, you go from CNC to Roulette to MGM to Colpix. At Colpix in 64, you formed a production company with Wes Farrell. 
when you come out of the Army, Don Kirshner is no longer at Culpixer. You end up at MGM, and then after MGM, you go to, <laughs> um, you know, you got to follow the bouncing ball here. You go to yeah. Buddha. Wes Farrell, also a name that's probably not as well known today as it should be, Wes Farrell was very involved in the Partridge family, which leads very nicely, a nice segue, to in 1969, you have a top 10 hit with a song that you didn't write called I'm Gonna Make You Mine, yes. that was written by Tony Romeo, yes. who also is probably most famous for writing I Think I Love You for the Partridge Family. Right. You and Tony would go on to have a very long creative career, making some wonderful records together. Thank you. A yes. After that. But you have this record, I'm Gonna Make You Mine, that is top 10. I mentioned Ellie Granite. She's singing background on that song. Mm -hmm. It's much more of a 60s UK sound to my ear mm -hmm. than, you know, Lightning Strikes or Two Faces Have I or, or um, Rhapsody in the Rain or any of these songs. Probably because Tony Romeo was that. He was coming more from a, a place, you know, of English pop music as opposed to American pop music. I didn't meet Tony until it was a after, hit. Right. It was after a Who hit. produced him? Stan Vincent. Got it. Who made great little records. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just, you know, just you had to stand up and boogie. And that, and that was on Buddha. Yeah. So do you remember the team at Buddha? Was Neil Bogart involved at all? He sure was. And? and Any Neil uh, Bogart stories? Oh. Well, yeah, a few few stories. I mean, I, I brought a lot of demos to Neil Bogart, and they were Elton John's. And I brought him to to boot so he could look because I Elton played, Elton also recorded it. Uh, she, she, she sold, sold me, me magic. magic. He covered it. Yeah, yeah he covered it. Um, what was it like, Elton John covering your song? Well, I didn't. I wasn't aware of it, and because he went under the other name before Elton, it was Reggie Reg Dwight. Yeah. Reg Dwight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then he played piano for me at a, on a, on BBC uh, when we were doing the record mm -hmm. uh, over there. You know. So I, I didn't know him that well, except the publishers. You know, I said, "Man, this, yeah, you know, this guy is very interesting." And and they and they, I didn't even know that I had that was the same guy right. that was playing on my piano because you know it wasn't Elton John, it was right. Reggie. You know, but I brought them back to him, and I've had a few things with with Neil. Neil could pick he forty five records, mm -hmm. but you know you'd find out that these people, they really didn't know, and they they didn't know how to create right how to write something how to, you know they may have have an ear but uh, it couldn't couldn't write they couldn't create i was a creator right you were a songwriter you know and as and my father always said you know they can they can take all the money from you but they'll never be able to take your creativity away right you know and that sort of saved me all the time right so you, you run into a bit of a buzzsaw in, you know, of the music business in the late 60s during this time. After you have the top 10 with I'm Going to Make You Mine, the follow-up should have been She Sold Me Magic, but it was never released in America. Um, you say the reason was because they didn't publish it. You know, oh, it's just um, always that. But it did go number one in Japan. It right. stayed number one longer than any record ever stayed number one. Maybe. 
And so that's kind of the end of chapter one of your recordings from the Gypsy Cried through I'm Gonna Make You Mine in America, right? Which is kind of like, you know, you had five top 40 hits, including the number one, including a bunch of top tens. But then the career, very interesting to me, takes a little bit of, or a lot bit of a creative turn because there's more that you wanna do musically than just make these pop records. So in 1971, you cut an album called Pain America Love on Buddha. And Pain America Love is not the type of music that one would expect if one only knew Lou Christie from Lightning Strikes or Two Faces Have I. Right. Talk about the genesis behind that project. Well, uh, pop music was waning. It was, it was leaving uh, the shores. You know, uh, the English invasion happened. The war, Vietnam War. Kent that State. Was, I mean, it was just... Right. The sexual revolution right. was happening. Uh, everything was happening. The kids were buying LPs. They they were smoking joints. Right. They were not. Uh, you weren't. They were not going to Murray the case sock hops anymore. No more. No more teenage uh, idol things. Uh, you know the Beatles were there stomping away. They were, you know, penny laning and right. strawberry fields forever. You know. So things were changing. It was right. another you had generation. Stock in '69, you, know, you, you didn't had, have just good-looking right. old Italian right. guys, right. you know, running around <laughs> and you know, a little blondes or anything like that. Now, you now you're competing with the Beatles. Not only the Beatles, but you're competing with the Doors, and you're competing yes. with the Grateful Dead and Woodstock and and all this crazy stuff. And, and Twyla and I knew what was happening, and we thought, well, let's show them how we can write too, you know, for ourselves, because right. that we were always competing with ourselves, and we got to, you know come up with our own shtick, as right. they say. And we wrote, you know, Paint America Love, and it is, I don't know, it's creative as we could get at that yeah, moment. Yeah, well, if you read about it now, everyone refers to it as, you know, this owes a lot more to Jimmy Webb than it does yeah. to Bob Marcucci, you know. Oh. <laughs> um, and I love the fact that even though the album, again, produced by Tony Romeo, the album wasn't a commercial success, but the people whose music, you know, the, the people who it touched musically, you got a letter from Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein, yeah. You know, saying how much, how impressed he was by wow. how different it was. You found, God, you found right? that. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, and I can't find the damn letter. <laughs> I wish I because my mother and they, they kept trunks of stuff throughout right. these years. You one, know, of the, like, one of these days, hopefully they don't. Oh, and I keep looking for, you know, those kind of things. Like the Royal Command performances that I did came from the Buckingham Palace, right. you know, so right. <laughs> I have a few of those. But you released Paint America Love. It's your, you know, I don't know if magnum opus is the right word, but it's definitely an mm -hmm. album, a concept album that you put your heart and soul into it. doesn't perform as well as some of the earlier singles. So right. you become a bit disillusioned with the music business, and you move to England? I did. And you start taking jobs outside of the music business? No. 
No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do that. I, I went to England. There is a, a topper to this why okay. I left and went to England. Also, I recorded a record. It was called The Lion Sleeps Tonight. I heard about this, and I heard our old podcast guest, Clive Davis, has something to do with this story. Charlie yes. Colello and Clive Davis butting heads a little bit. So I, we had that. Charlie left. I was involved with Charlie. So we, I go and Hank Medris, who was one of the tokens. My old friend. Yeah. All right. So we recorded The Lion Sleeps Tonight. My business manager con artist, guy, blah, 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 got in the way and wanted more money because I had, I'm going to make you mine, was such a big hit. They got into a fight and they took... This is Charlie? This is Herb? This, this is, is something This else. is uh, Buddha Records. Okay, got it. And so they took my voice. He said, I'm going to take Lou's voice off the record. Buddha said this. Buddha said, because it was the record was supposed to come out. The next record was Lion Sleeps Tonight. They put Robert John's voice on. It's my record, though. I have the master of it home with me singing it. And So uh, the track is exactly the same. Exactly. Robert John cuts his vocal yeah. on it, and that becomes a number one record all over the world, released, I knew ironically enough, be. on Atlantic Records. Yeah. And I that. said, bye. I, so I've that, had enough that of the was, record business. That was the straw that broke the camel's yeah. back. And then, of course, I met another beautiful straw, and I got married in England. Right. And uh, to a woman in changed. England. Yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So, when did you come back to America and start doing the odd jobs? Well, you know, I I wanted to <laughs> think that I was normal. <laughs> you know, because I thought I, I, you know, I started, but I worked in England the whole time as uh, a musician. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being booked in Wales right. and in Scotland right. and Royal Command performances. I mean, because the records over there were big. Right. I'm going to make you mine. I just come off of a million-selling mm -hmm. record there, number one record. And she sold me magic, right. and I'm going to make, you know. So I did, but when I came back, I had to figure out, when I came back, I had no money, and I had to figure out how, how am I going to raise my two children and my wife <laughs> and pay for what I had to do. So, um, you know, I was trying to figure all of that out. Uh, and nothing ever, nothing ever worked. I started a record label. I did certain things with a couple people in Pittsburgh. And nothing worked until I was met by... Yeah. Who, Richard yeah, Nader? Richard Nader. Okay. So when I... I, I saw Richard Nader on the street. I came back to New York, and I was working with Tony Romeo right. again. And Richard said, oh, my gosh, where have you been? I said, well, I, I, I've been in uh, London. I've been in England. You know, I li I've lived there for now three years because I didn't even come back to America. And that's when I, you know, in introduced Badfinger to the people that I was involved with. And they wanted to be managed by who I was managed by because I had so much success. So I introduced them, and we were involved with this crazy upheaval with uh, called Five Arts. And Peter Ham was involved with that, and you know the ending of that was just sad. Right. Um, this was before they signed to Apple. Yeah, that was that was yeah. The they were they no they were with Apple. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to be managed by Stan Polly, right. and Stan Polly at that point, what was happening was he was indicted with a Supreme Court judge from New York, and um, 
it was front page. Andy, we were going public with the company right. that we had because we had guys who wrote tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. We had a uh, a company that involved so many people who were successful writers, producers, and you know it went from the best right down to right. the you know we right. I, like I, I sent them over you know uh, bad finger and then oh well, let's see we had. Uh, Tony Orlando, and I think uh, the tokens were involved, some of the uh, tokens were. That's how that whole thing happened with The Lion Sleeps Tonight, right. because Hank Medris was the uh, pretty much the producer. The first the record label that I ever worked for as an A&R guy was for Marty Bandier and Charles Koppelman at SBK Records in the late 80s, and Hank Medris was our staff producer. There you go. Had a lot of fun with Hank. He was great. He was missed. Yes. He was and missed. I, and we, when we cut Lion Sleeps Tonight, I thought... It doesn't get any better. This is a hit record. Right. It's a hit record. And of course, it was another million right. selling record, but without my voice. How, how, how does point. your voice compare to the version that everybody knows? It's very, it was cop, It was literally copied, exactly, exactly. Because when I hear the record, I think, is that me singing? I don't you know. Um, and you've never released your version of it? No, no. I don't, you know, I have the master right. of it. And Hank did it, you right. know. Uh, but, you know, business... Yeah. Overtook any artistry. You, you know, know, we always talk about the music business as two words. It's music and it's and business. business. And sometimes the business gets in the way of the music, and that's unfortunate. That's um, been my biggest problem all the way down the line. Fast forwarding to the 80s, you meet up with Leslie Gore. You make some, some yeah. great music with Leslie Gore. What was that like? Oh, we, we just started just taking over again. Uh, it was great because, you know, we recorded a few great things, and uh, you know, uh, uh, since I don't have you, of course, the Skyliner record, and it's only make believe, and we started doing shows around the country, and we were just packing them in. You know, it just worked. I loved the way she sang. She had great records. She loved the way I sang, and I. She was one of the most underrated people, I think, in pop music. She could she could sing. She had a jazz feel to her. We both had, you know, we liked each other's personalities, and she was she was a You're tough. Right. It's, it sounds like you had a genuine friendship with. Oh, her, we so. did, we yeah. did, because I met her in 1962 right. when she had it's my party, right. and I had the gypsy cried right. out. Right. So we were just remained so friends. You, you had a lot of history. <laughs> she, yeah, she was a lot of fun. Yeah, one one thing we didn't mention as we uh, as we wrap up is in 1974 you record an album for another label called Three Brothers, which is a label I don't know a lot about, and probably for good reason. But Well, that was the first, he, you know, uh, CTI. That was, that was his label. That was... Uh, CTI. The, they had the jazz, yeah, all the yeah, jazz. Yeah. Creed Taylor. That was Creed Taylor's label. Yes. Three Brothers. I did yeah, not he know started that. it for us. Creed Taylor Tony. recently passed away. It's, it's, it's funny, Leslie Gore, Hank Medris, all, all these names. Oh. That, did Creed know, pass away? He passed away in the last year, yeah. And there was a big, um, there was a big article I read about his studio, which was left untouched, and you know all of those classic jazz records were made at Creed Studio. Yes, they so, were. But the record that you made for Three Brothers, which was Creed Taylor, learn something new every day. So thank you yeah. for that. Was a, a country record with yes. Tony Romeo producing, and yes. you did a version of a song originally recorded by, all of all people, Jeanette McDonald yes. um, in the 30s of Beyond the Blue Beyond Horizon. Beyond the Blue Horizon.
my for, standing ovation every night. For anyone who has not heard Lou Christie's version of Beyond the Blue Horizon, and you may have heard it if you saw the movie Rain Man, you know, iconic movie with this iconic song in there. You record, you perform this song. I read on the Grand Ole Opry. Yes, I did. I have a story I've written about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's been in five different movies. Five different movies. It's. I was listening to it. You know, getting ready to meet up with you today. It. It's. It's a timeless recording. It still sounds fresh. Yeah, as as vital and fresh now as it did when you recorded it. That's always been. One number one in my my mind as create as a creative person always had to do something unique for myself so I can you know so I can walk on the stage and do it and sing it and because and I think that that I've gathered some fantastic fans because of that different unique people who you know who like whatever whatever I do you know and it. And it makes me feel good because I keep it fresh for myself. Because you have to leave that part of your life as being a, a child. It's right. to create something. Right. You know, you can't worry about. It doesn't sound like that. I never wanted to sound like someone. Right. I never wanted to make a record like someone. Right. That's just what Twilight and I did. Right. It had to be unique. Yeah, I mean, there's so much more to Lou Christie and Lou Christie's music than, you know, the 45s of the 60s, sure. you know, and I would encourage everyone to, with with the advent of, of digital streaming services, um, yeah. you know, you can find most of this music, if not all of this music, on your DSP, dig- digital service provider of choice, and you can listen to Beyond the Blue Horizon, or you can listen to the... Um, you know, any, any of America stuff. Love the stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the Pain America Love. And there's just such a, you know, a breadth of catalog beyond some of the hits that a lot of people would know, but they wouldn't know the other stuff. And it's definitely worth seeking out and listening to. And it's really, really great stuff. Are you still performing, touring, doing yes, all that I stuff? Yes, I just came back from Florida. I was down there at Tampa. We did a concert down there uh, last week. And then I'm somewhere next week then I'm in I'm Wheeling West Virginia yeah I mean I get and I also I'm working of all things with Frankie Avalon and Fabian and myself as the Golden Boys oh nice because Bobby Rydell passed away has yeah. now passed mm-hmm. away uh, recently Bobby Rydell last yeah, year yeah. yeah and so uh, I, I have that we have that on the road also and do you enjoy performing still? I do, I do. Uh, it's it's the traveling that is the problem right. anymore. The world has changed so drastically yeah. compared to what it was like years ago. Right. So it's harder and harder to do that end of it. But I do. I have to turn seventeen when I walk out on that right. stage. Right. And and you can I, still hit the high know, notes. Same key. On, on I don't know how I can do it. I don't think about it. I just don't want to even get into that head trip. Right. You know. Just happens. Just comes out. I'm, yeah. Just comes out. Well, amazing stories and, and amazing opportunity to go see Lou live when you see that he's coming to your town. And um, thank you for all the music. Thanks for the time. This thank was a pleasure. You. Thank you. Awesome. Lou Christie, everybody. Since I don't
Thanks again to Lou Christie for joining us this week and telling his fascinating tale of over 60 years in the music business. For more info on Lou, as well as upcoming tour dates alongside Frankie Avalon and Fabian, check out his website, lou-christie.com. And a special thank you to Mark Freed for making this one happen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.